Good morning, church. Good morning. I want to welcome our campuses in New Milford, Waterbury, Derby, and Line. And I want to welcome each of you who are visiting or new. My name is Adam DePasquale. I serve as one of our lead pastors here at the church. And it's just wonderful that you've chosen to join us this Christmas season. You know, it's Christmas time, right? Can you feel it in the air? It's here. It's definitely here. Last uh, weekend, our son was home from college. And so our family of five was back together again. And we went out on our annual Christmas tree hunt. And uh, this is something we love to do every year. And we go to a Christmas tree farm. We find our tree. There's always a lot of laughter, maybe some tears, right? I'm a little sensitive when it comes and they don't like my tree. (laughs) But it was mission successful. We found our tree. You know, uh, one of the things I love about our annual tradition is that each year we go and we try to find a tree that was bigger than the year before. Or at least that's what I do. Some of us do it as well. But I want to show you a picture from a few years ago. This is a picture um, when we had our largest tree ever. It'll come up. This is a 12-foot tree that we found in our, in, for our house. And this was a little overboard. It was so big that when we'd have conversations, we'd have to, like, walk around the Christmas tree. Right? It was just so, so big. Maybe too much. And so this year, I'll show you the next picture. We had an 8-foot tree. Uh, and this is because I think we cut down all the large trees in the farm over the year, right? But to be honest with you, um, this tree took serious negotiations. <laughs> I won't take you down that rabbit trail, but it was quite, quite, a, quite a journey. Listen, I want to encourage you to get back into your Christmas traditions. I tell you, there's nothing like traditions to help bring about joy in your family, right? To help focus your attention on what's important upon the Lord. And so uh, get into your Christmas traditions, at least the ones that are good, right? Some of them you let go of probably, right? Probably so. And this is the time of year to start new traditions. Start traditions where you kind of say, Lord, how can I get you as the center of this season? And uh, this is always a good time of year to invite others to join you. Maybe there are folks you know who don't have family around, or maybe there are folks who don't have many friends nearby. Just say, come along, be part of this tradition that we're doing. Right, it's very, very powerful. You know, I hope when you uh, stepped into each of your campuses this weekend, you saw how beautiful they looked. And I want to just take a moment to thank, seriously, like a hundred different volunteers and families who worked inside the church, outside the church, built sets, and all kinds of things. Can you give them a, a little thanks? Yeah. It's such, such a blessing, such a blessing. And you know, it's beginning to look a lot, a lot like Christmas, right? Everywhere you go. Take a look at the five and ten. It's glistening once again. Is someone going to join me in singing? Come on, come on. No, seriously, though. You know, it's one thing for it to look a lot like Christmas, but all of us know it's a whole other thing to step into this Christmas season with our hearts and our minds and our spirits aligned, right, with the Lord. And that's what we want to do today. That's what we want to do today. So I want to start by reading to you from Galatians 4, 4 through 7. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons and as daughters. You know, church, today we begin the Advent season when we celebrate this miracle that at the fullness of time, at the exact moment ordained and appointed by God, he came to us. Just like the prophet Isaiah had declared some 700 years prior, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and you will call him Emmanuel which means God with us. And just like the angel pronounced to Joseph in a dream, he will save his people from their sins. Hallelujah, right? Praise the Lord. You know, the Christmas season is one of awe and wonder. It's a hope-filled season. It's a joyful season. It's a season that reminds us that we're more loved than we could ever imagine. 
that we're more loved than we could ever hope for. You know, it's a season that reminds us of this timeless truth that in Jesus, we can experience and live in peace, both now and forevermore. You know, when you truly take time to step back and recognize that at just the right time, in just the right place, through God's chosen servants, he initiated the most beautiful, the most wonderful, the most compelling, the most magnificent love story. An intergalactic rescue mission, if you will, truly. When you take time to reflect on those wonders, it should change your perspective, right? As our eyes go to heaven. It should change the priorities in our lives to what matters the most. It should change what we hold dear, right? It should change our lives. Because there's so much power in the Christmas story. There's so much power in the story of Jesus coming to earth on our behalf. And so over these next four weeks, we want to tell the story of the birth of our Savior by traveling on the very roads journeyed by the characters of Christmas. We're going to go to Nazareth, where the angel Gabriel visited a young Mary. We're going to walk to Ein Karem. It's a small village outside of Jerusalem, believed to be the place where Mary found refuge in Elizabeth's home. We're going to travel to Bethlehem as Joseph journeys with Mary to register for the census issued by Caesar Augustus. We're going to hike from the Judean hills in the far east with shepherds and wise men to the unlikely place, the town of David, Bethlehem, where we're going to experience the presence of Jesus. And church, I want to invite you to come out each week because we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to our minds, to touch our hearts, and to pour out fresh grace upon us this season as we seek him together. So before we go further, would you join me in a word of prayer? Oh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we worship you. We gather in your name. Lord, we gather in your presence. And Jesus, we rejoice that you came to earth, that you humbled yourself, that you dwelled among us, so that we could receive what we don't deserve, what we could never earn. Lord, that we could experience this everlasting, abundant life in you. What a gift, a true gift. And so, Lord, we ask that you speak to us today. Pour out fresh grace upon us, your people, for your glory. Amen. Amen. So church, today we're going to journey to Nazareth. And I'm so excited to share with you what the Lord's been teaching me and showing me. And you know, we're going to start by diving deeply into scripture where I hope to bring to light the story of the angel Gabriel visiting Mary in a fresh way. And then later on, I want to share with you a few words that I believe the Lord has given me for us. So if you're ready to journey to Nazareth, if you have your Bible, please open it to Luke chapter 1. We're going to be studying verses 26 through 38. This is verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. Now, we're going to learn more about Elizabeth next week, but Elizabeth is a relative of Mary's, and she's married to a priest named Zechariah. And miraculously, they're going to give birth to their first son, whose name is John the Baptist. This is an amazing story. So in the sixth month of her pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth. Who is this Gabriel? So Gabriel is one of the only few named angels in the Bible. Some of you may have heard of the archangel Michael, mentioned in the book of Jude, Daniel, and Revelation. He's a warrior angel. Gabriel is mentioned in the book of Daniel and Luke and is often thought of as a messenger angel. It's interesting, while we don't know much about his appearance, the book of Daniel tells us that he looked like a man. But catch this, every time that Gabriel appears, people seem to tremor with fear. 
Listen to Daniel's account. As he came near the place where I was standing, I, fell, I was terrified and I fell prostrate. It's powerful, right? When Zechariah saw him in Luke chapter 1, Scripture says that he was startled and he was gripped with fear. Have you ever been gripped with fear before? But what I love is in both the case of Zechariah and Mary's visit, Gabriel announces, do not be afraid, which seemingly helps, right? So if you're ever visited by Gabriel, you know two things. One, he likely carries a message from the throne room of heaven. And two, despite his powerful and intimidating presence, he's seemingly kind, right? So God sends the angel Gabriel to the village of Nazareth. Why Nazareth? Now, this is a really important question, and throughout this series, we're going to learn a lot about the character of God by the choices he made and where this Christmas story would unfold. Let me explain it to you this way. On August 13th, 1983, the king of pop, Michael Jackson, began his first tour without his brothers. This was a significant moment. It was also significant because he was supporting his new album, Thriller. All right, confession time. Anyone have Thriller in their record collection? Yes. You see, Thriller would go on to spend 37 weeks at number one and sell approximately 70 million albums worldwide. So where was this king of pop going to choose to start his world tour? In New York City. Michael Jackson chose one of the greatest cities in the world to start his world tour. On May 25th, 1961, John F. Kennedy announced this ambitious goal of sending humans to the moon. Can you imagine that? Where did he choose to make this bold announcement? Before a joint session of Congress in Washington, D.C., the center of politics. Did you know that there are more than 200 professional comedy clubs in the United States? Stay with me. You're wondering what I'm doing here. You know, being a comedian is this incredibly competitive field, and over the years, late-night shows and sitcoms have discovered that when they want to look for rising talent, there's something very specific they must do. You see, time and time again, if an applicant is from or has spent time in the city of Chicago, they're certain to be noticed. Did you know at least 40 Saturday Night Live cast members have been from Chicago? Because they've spent time honing their craft at comedy clubs like Second City and the Annoyance Theater. What's my point? I have no idea. Nah, I do have an idea. Here's my point. Location matters. You know, location says a lot about the impression you're trying to make. Location says a lot about the audience you're trying to reach. Location says a lot about the qualifications that you think are important. Location says a lot about the message that you're trying to communicate. And here's the thing. The creator of the universe chose to send the angel Gabriel, his top messenger, to Nazareth. Not Rome, not Alexandria, not Antioch, not Ephesus, not Jerusalem, not Capernaum, not Joppa, not Caesarea, Nazareth. Why? What is so special about this village of Nazareth? You want to know what's so special? It's unremarkable. It's completely unremarkable in every way. This is a town that has no specific mention in the Old Testament. Kings didn't live there. Palaces weren't built there. Prophets weren't born there. Major battles weren't won there. And while the land had been occupied by the Canaanites for years and years, and even though the tribe of Zebulun had won it and settled there, it was just too insignificant to make any news headlines. And then around 700 BC, the Assyrians conquered the land and the Israelites were deported. 
And archaeologists note that this town must have been completely depopulated because you rarely find any Assyrian or Persian pottery there from that time period. However, around 100 BC, the Hasmoneans conquered the area and the Jews began to return. It was around this time that Nazareth began to be resettled. Now listen, while I mentioned that Nazareth isn't found in the Old Testament, that's only partly true. Listen to Isaiah 11. A shoot will come from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord, and it goes on and on. Now you might say, Adam, I didn't hear you say Nazareth at all. True. But if you look at the original language, you find something fascinating. You see, most theologians have pointed out that the word for branch in Isaiah 11 is netzer. And netzer sounds extremely similar to the original language for Nazareth, pronounced netzeret. In other words, almost like a wordplay, a nickname for Nazareth could be Branchville, home of the Messiah. You see, there's this prophetic connection between the Messiah and Isaiah 11 and Nazareth. And this is likely why Jesus' disciple Matthew wrote in his gospel account that Jesus came and lived in a city called Nazareth. And this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. There was this prophetic connection between the Messiah and Nazareth. In the fullness of time, God chose Nazareth as a critical location for his story. And this unremarkable village would become famous around the world because of Jesus and the light Jesus brought into the world. You see, church, God's qualifications and plans so often look completely different than the world's, don't they? And I love 2 Chronicles 16.9. It says this, The eyes of the Lord search the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. You see, in the Lord's economy, there's no such thing as the wrong side of town. In fact, so often, the Lord's greatest work takes place in the most unlikely places. So here in this seemingly insignificant village of two to 300 people at most, verse 27 tells us that the angel Gabriel visits a virgin who's pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now, to help you get a better picture of this angelic visitation, I want to share with you some details. So cast your minds a little bit. Archaeologists have found that the town center of first century Nazareth would have been about the size of two and a half football fields by one football field, right? A tiny area. Can you picture that? It probably consisted of 50 stone houses at most, and there was reasonable distance between each house to allow room for animals and agriculture and family business. And these were not wealthy people, so their homes were very simple without a lot of adornment. And archaeologists have found that these houses were built in front of or on top of limestone caves because it would provide consistent temperatures in the winter and the summer. And this was an agricultural area full of olive groves and vineyards and grain. Archaeologists have found that it had a synagogue. They've even located the community well from that time period. And so knowing this, a lot of people go and they say, where exactly did Gabriel visit Mary? I want to go and visit it. And we don't know. Scripture doesn't say. It could have been as Mary was on the way back from the community well, which she would have frequented. It could have taken place in her house. But catch this. Today's Nazareth is a city of 75,000 people. And within the city... Archaeologists know, and every person who lives there knows where the first century village once existed. 
And within that tiny area, there's a location where a house once stood and a cave still exists today. And the early Christians honored that place as Mary's home, so much so that by the second century, a Judeo-Christian synagogue was built there. And archaeologists have found early Christian graffiti in that location with the words Jesus and Hail Mary written on the stone. And by the fourth century, a church was built in that location, and one has existed there ever since. You know, I've had the opportunity to visit Nazareth three times, and the last time I went was in 2022, part of our hiking trip where we hiked 50 miles through Israel. It was amazing. And sometime at one of our free time, I went to the Church of Annunciation, and I saw this place believed to be Mary's home. I want to tell you, it was an amazing thing to, to sit there in quietness in this cave and just imagine how these events might have unfolded. I don't know if you've ever had a quiet time in your life where the presence of the Lord comes upon you, but it was a holy moment for me. And as so often happens in those moments, I just freshly dedicated my life to the Lord and I asked him to pour out his grace and mercy upon me. It was really special. These are real places. So what do we know about the virgin named Mary? You know, I wanna start by separating legend and myth from scripture because there was a book written in the second century called The Gospel of James. Now, obviously, being such a late work written in the second century, it wasn't written by eyewitnesses. And so, therefore, it was considered untrustworthy and even heretical by those early church leaders. So much so that even the Pope in the fifth century completely rejected it. Nonetheless, this book has been the source of so much of the folklore that we know about Mary, right? It added details about her upbringing. It added ideas about her parents that were not believed to be true. So what do we actually know about Mary's background? The truth is not a lot. Scripture tells us that there's this connection to the lineage of David, that Mary was a virgin, and that she was pledged to be married to Joseph. That's it. Now, culturally at this time, we know that Jewish girls would have been engaged as early as 12 years old. So she was likely between 12 and 14 years old when Gabriel visited. Imagine that. It's widely accepted. As I mentioned ago, a few minutes ago, Nazareth was not a wealthy community, so Mary was a commoner. So take a step back. From society's perspective, there is nothing correct about God's plan here. Right? God, you've chosen the wrong location, and now you've chosen the wrong person. But you can almost hear the Lord's reply through Isaiah 55. For my thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You see, God knew what he was doing when he chose Nazareth, this insignificant town, and when he chose Mary, a commoner. Because the Lord sees our hearts and he knows our potential even when we don't see it or believe it ourselves. Take a look at verse 28. It says, the angel went to her and said, greetings you who are highly favored. And this word favor is really about grace. You could think of it as greetings you who have been given divine grace. The Lord is with you. The scripture says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. Again, this could be thought of, do not be afraid, Mary. God has given you a special gift of grace. I love that. It's so important. You see, the Lord gave Mary the grace she would need for this enormous task. And God continues to do that in our lives today, right? He pours out his grace for the assignments that he gives us. What a blessing. 
So church, you know, right here at the start of the Christmas season, I just want to pause my message for a moment and just say this to you. You know, just like the village of Nazareth or maybe like Mary, maybe you're here today and you feel insignificant. Maybe you feel like you've been hidden from the world or forgotten by man, or maybe that you've been out of sight from the Lord. But I believe the Lord would say this to you. I see you and I know exactly where you are. You're not a mistake. I know your history and I know your future. I will work in and through your current circumstances. I have a purpose and a plan for your life, and it will come to pass. It will come to pass. Trust me. Wait on me. And I feel like the Lord is saying to us today, greetings, you who are highly favored. I am pouring out my grace upon you this season for all that I want to do in you and through you. You are my church. You are my bride. You are my beloved. Do not be afraid. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will guide you because I love you. You know, if those words resonate with you at all, I want to encourage you to treasure them in your home, in your house, in your heart, and to speak to the Lord about them. You know, let's continue and look at this powerful message that Gabriel brought to Mary. This is verse 31. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. You will conceive and give birth to a son. In other words, Mary, this isn't a dream. Because of God's favor upon you, because of the grace granted to you, because of the sovereign decision-making over the universe, you will become pregnant and you will give birth to a son. And you will call him Jesus, Jesus. And the root word of Jesus lies with the biblical name Joshua, Yeshua, which means Jehovah is salvation. The Lord is salvation. In other words, Mary, the child that will be born from your womb is my son, and he will be your deliverer. He will be your deliverer. Not government, not good fortune, not good works, not your bank account, not your career, not your friends, certainly not luck. Yeshua, Jehovah is salvation. He is your deliverer. Mary, I've come to your people's aid. Through Jesus, I will bring about victory. And he will be great. And this word great means powerful, virtuous, full of authority and might. And church, Jesus' greatness is not linked to a title. It's linked to the fact that as the Apostle Paul wrote in Colossians, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Praise the Lord, right? Mary, Jesus is great. And he's going to be called the son of the most high. And church, this is why the modern hymnist wrote these words. What a powerful name it is. What a powerful name it is. Sing with me if you know it. The name of Jesus Christ, my king. What a powerful name it is. Nothing can stand against 
What a powerful name it is, the name of Jesus. And I love this part, sung to the Lord. You have no rival, you have no equal. Now and forever, God, you reign. Because yours is the kingdom, yours is the glory, yours is the name above all names. What a powerful name it is, Jesus. The Lord is salvation. And Gabriel continues and says, the Lord will give him the throne of his father, David. And this pronouncement goes back to 2 Samuel 7 when the prophet Nathan spoke to King David. You know, so often with Old Testament prophecy, there's multiple fulfillments of the prophecy. And in this case, the word was given to David for his son Solomon, but also to the Messiah. Listen to these words from Nathan. The Lord declares to you, David, that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. In other words, Mary, what's taking place inside of you was declared to the prophets a thousand years ago. Mary, he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How does a 12-year-old girl respond to this pronouncement from heaven? Like any 12-year-old girl should, right? With wonder and perhaps a list of questions and concerns. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? It's a good question, right? It's an appropriate question. Continue with verse 35. The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. You know, when I read that, I just hear the compassion of the Lord coming through Gabriel. In other words, Mary, God is going to do this. You don't need to be afraid. Jesus is God's son. He's holy. God is so powerful. Even Elizabeth is going to have a child. You know, it makes me wonder in that moment, was a seed planted in Mary's heart? And she thought, I have to go see Elizabeth. I've got to go see this work that the Lord has done. And then perhaps some of the most beautiful words in Scripture. Mary replies to the angel, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. And then the angel left. Mary, full of grace, full of favor, fully aware of the assumptions and the judgment that would come upon her from others, fully aware of the potential consequences upon her life. Mary believes that no word from God will ever fail, that he is her salvation, and that if Gabriel is just one example of the kind of angels in God's army, then she is well covered. Church, in closing, I just want to say this to you. I'm inspired by Mary. I'm inspired by her courage. I'm inspired by her faith. I'm inspired by her obedience to the Lord, not knowing what the future would look like, right? But only that he was going to be with her. May we take her example 
and in the grace and mercy provided by the Lord, whatever your present circumstances are, may we humble ourselves, may we embrace God's plans and assignments, may we do so with anticipation and expectation. May each of us respond to the Lord today with the words, I am the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Amen. 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 I want to invite the worship team to come out. And uh, you know, there are moments where you kind of, as a pastor, get a sense of a room and it feels like there's a bit of awe and wonder, a little bit of sense of the Lord's presence here today. And so, you know, in some churches they have kneeling benches where you can actually just immediately get on your knees if you want to. And I'm just going to pray for us. I want to encourage you, if you're feeling a moment to kneel or maybe to stand or maybe just to extend your hands, let's just pray to Almighty God. Father, in this moment, we just acknowledge your presence here among us. Lord, we acknowledge the fact that you are creator of the universe and that you have such an amazing plan. Lord, to think that your plans involve even small towns like Nazareth and commoners like Mary. Lord, in this moment, we want to be able to say to you, I am the Lord's servant. May your will in my life come to pass. And I just pray, Lord, for each person here today that they will feel your love and your presence and your significance upon them in a powerful way. Lord, that in this Christmas season, you would release our hearts to be able to worship you, that all the noise around us would kind of go to the side and your presence would be center. In Jesus' name, amen.